I'm so glad you all are here because I have an announcement to make. It's an important announcement. It is a shocking announcement. And it's very, very good that you're all able to be here and hear this very important announcement. I want to get it right, so I'm going to read it to you. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be a disciple of Jesus. Any one of you who does not renounce all that you have cannot be a disciple of Jesus. That's a shocking announcement. In fact, it's not an announcement. It's a pronouncement. And that shocking pronouncement has been made by none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth pronounces that if you don't renounce everything, you cannot be his disciple. Gives me a funny feeling in my heart just saying it. I think it's important that we would ask the question, why? Why on earth would Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, of all people, say such a thing? And what we're going to do this morning is seek to answer that question. If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to join me looking at Luke 14. I was quoting Jesus from Luke 14. And so if you have a Bible, you can find Luke 14. What we're going to seek to do today is answer the question, why would Jesus make such an extreme pronouncement? And if you're just joining us, uh, we're studying the gospel according to Luke. So the good news about Jesus, according to Dr. Luke, as would have been his profession, and we're studying it as a church. And so we're in Luke 14 today. Uh, and working our way through learning about Jesus and His greatness and about His profoundness and His power. And we're at that shocking section in Luke 14 today when He makes this shocking pronouncement. We'll see how we do on time. Um, but I do, in answering the question, I think it's just the best approach for today to try to answer the question. We're going to answer it um, with ten answers. Um, there are probably more answers and we probably won't get done even though I'll try to talk really fast. Um, sometimes. Um, I think it's important that we grapple with it. We're going to grapple with it in the text itself as we look at some of the details in Luke 14 and we look at verses 25 to 35. We'll do all we can to answer that question, why would Jesus say such a shocking thing um, so that we can know him better, so that we can know him maybe, period, so that we can find encouragement and we can have understanding. So that's going to be the plan for this morning. Ten answers to the question, why would Jesus say such a thing? Number one, the first answer to the question, why would Jesus say any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, is because of excuses. Because of excuses. Literally because of excuses being made in that historical setting. People are making excuses to not follow him, and his response is to say, to not say, oh, that's okay, you know, whenever it's convenient for you. There are people making excuses to not follow him, embrace him as the Messiah, the deliverer, the king. And so when they make excuses, he responds with an extreme statement like that. In fact, we see this not in verses 25 and following. We see it in a passage we all looked at last Sunday, those of us who are here. And I'd, I'd like to draw your attention to it to, to help us understand the context. Context is important in understanding the Bible, and this certainly is the case. So if we look back at verse 16 of chapter 14, 
we hear these words. But he said to him, this is Jesus speaking, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And the man in the context is Jesus, who's the king. He invites many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who'd been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. And we're not going to work through the excuses. Then we'll go down to verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. There's all these different excuses in the illustration Jesus gives for not coming to him on his terms and embracing Jesus as the deliverer, savior, long promised king. And in response, Jesus, in our passage, says some really strong things. If you don't come to me on my terms, you cannot be my disciple. It's very strong. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of if you see Jesus for who He really is, then you won't make excuses. He's been showing Himself while He was here on earth, as is recorded in Luke or Mark or Matthew or John or wherever else, as is recorded in Acts. He's proving, He's showing Himself objectively to be the promised one. And people are saying, well, you know, I'm busy, or what about this, or what about that? And Jesus doesn't soften things so as to change his character, which would be impossible. He just makes it all the clearer. If you don't come to me on my terms, then you can't be my disciple. You don't belong to my kingdom. It's very strong. It's very strong. And sometimes we forget just how clear Jesus is about this. But we have to remember, if he really is the one, then the, the statements, they're extreme, but in another sense, they're not extreme. There's no room for excuses. No legitimate excuse if He really is the one. It's not very hard for us to apply this, even though we're not living there and then. Jesus still, through His ambassadors, calls men and women like us to come to Him on His terms, to embrace Him as the ultimate delivering one. And to make excuses no matter how good they might be, are ridiculous if He really and truly is the Christ, the Deliverer, the One who would be raised from the dead. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, the most important one, so that there are no excuses then. It doesn't even make sense to have an excuse. But He responds with excuses, with, with clarity and very, very strong pronouncements. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, as it said in verse 33. He won't be put off. He won't be relegated to second place. He's the king and wants to be treated as the king. Let's move on now. A second answer to the question, why would Jesus say this? It's so shocking. Number two, because of popularity. Because of popularity. Follow with me, if you would, in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. Yes, the religious leaders didn't like him because he was a threat to them. Certain political leaders didn't like him because he was a threat to them. But make no mistake about it, at this point in time, Jesus is popular. Jesus is in. Jesus is trending. After all, you, you, he, he brings restoration and He brings forgiveness. And after all, he's, he's silencing those leaders who've been oppressing us. 
and, and, and all of these great things are happening and you, you want to get on the Jesus bandwagon because there's so many good things. And so popularity is surging. Now great crowds, there it is, popular, accompanied him. And then we keep reading. And he turned and said to them. So how do you face popularity? Well, here you go. <laughs> when, you, when, you know, when you go to the bookstore, we don't do that anymore. But when you, if you were to buy a books, book on Amazon, you know, Jesus on leadership. Well, when you're trending and getting popular, say offensive things. Um, that's why we shouldn't write books like that on Jesus and leadership because he didn't come here to teach leadership principles. He came here to be the Messiah. Anyway, I don't, the good thing is I don't have to remember that for second service because it just came into my mind. And this is all, this is all that it is. Anyway, and he turned to them and said, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's how he responds to popularity. I think it's because Jesus cares, because everybody wants to get on the Jesus bandwagon. Everybody wants to get on the Jesus bandwagon. And, and, and maybe they don't even know who he really is. But if he is the Messiah, remember Messiah means king, deliverer, long ago promised one, the Christ. If he is the Messiah, then he's going to say things like this because he's not just someone you add to your life or something you just add to your life because it's going to make you more at peace or happier or whatever it might be. And there are all kinds of people who are saying, I want to get on that bandwagon because it's going to give me a more fulfilled life and it's going to really add a new dimension to my spirituality or whatever it might be. And Jesus, out of care, no doubt, has to cut through it all and say, let me make one thing really clear. I'm the Messiah. And if I'm not the number one priority in your life, I'm not a helpful addition, I'm it. His popularity causes him to say hard things, true things. But all of this is designed, again, to make it clear that he, he really is the one. Not a one, he really is the one. And so, why would he say such a strong thing? Well, maybe graciously, lovingly, to, to thin out the crowd a little bit, if that's what, it, if that's what needs to, ha to happen, to have, to have it be genuine. And even think about this. You say, well, I didn't really like being thinned out. But if it helps you to see that you really weren't embracing him for who he was, so that now you know you still do need to embrace him for who he is, it's actually a good thing. Imagine that original crowd hearing him say this. Surely there were some who would think, how dare he to call for that kind of commitment in my life? Actually, that would be a better position to be in, wouldn't it? Than to just be on the bandwagon thinking he's just another benefiter, another one who benefits me in some way, shape, or form, but to not really see him for who he really is. At least when you're in that spot where you're offended and rubbed the wrong way, how dare he, at least you realize and know you're not on the team. So that, might, so that perhaps by God's grace, you could become part of the team. 
truth works that way. Jesus did not downplay truth for popularity, but actually met popularity with even stronger truth claims. Interestingly enough. I think maybe it would be good for us as the church and as Christians to remember that. And, and we're so infatuated with popularity that if, any, if we just get a little taste of it, we're quick to, to, to scale everything way down, minimize everything, uh, so that we can just get more popularity. When we need to remember we're Christians, that means we're followers of Christ, and it's Christ's church. And Jesus didn't start diluting things to get a bigger crowd when the crowd is getting really big. Not that he was, anti- not that he was sinister about it or anything like that. But he wanted to make sure people really knew. No doubt it's because he cared. A third answer to the question, why would Jesus say, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple? Number three, because of who he is. Because of who he is. And really, we've already been seeing this. This is fundamental to the whole thing. But, but let's at least hear him emphasize some important words. Now, in verse 25 again, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How about verse 33? So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let's not forget who he's been showing himself to be the whole time. The Messiah. The Deliverer. The Ultimate One. The One that all history has been waiting for and anticipating. He's not just a philosopher. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a, 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 a one who shows loving kindness. Though he did all those things. He's the One. And what would the one say when he showed up? Give me a part of your life. I really want you to, 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 to give me a, even a, a really good slot in your life. Make time for me. You see, if he's the one, then every other relationship by comparison by comparison, is insignificant. It doesn't mean that the other relationships are insignificant, by the way, because we could, we could hear from Jesus on other occasions where he most certainly is, by fulfilling the law himself, is going to honor his mother and father. He most certainly is going to emphasize that. In fact, Jesus even has to correct false teachers who are downplaying such kind of family commitments. So, so hear him clearly in context. He's not anti-family. In fact, he has to defend the family on occasion. But by comparison, your closest relationships, and, and typically this is the case. It's not always the case because he's not talking about the exceptions. But generally speaking, your closest relationships over the long haul, maybe not at certain times in your life, you get the idea, but over the long haul, your closest relationships are your family relationships. 
They're, they're your most prized possessions when it comes to relationships in the long haul of life. So Jesus uses those because those might very well be the excuses that people would have from following Jesus and coming to him on his terms. And he takes aim at those in this context, on this occasion, for this purpose. Your most valuable things. Your family relationships had better not even be in the same time zone when it comes to allegiance, commitment, devotion. Because I'm the Messiah. I'm the one. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the eternal, reigning, forever King, long ago promised. It would be crazy to think somehow There would be other relationships that would be more important than this relationship. I'm the one who will come and and atone for your sins. I'm the one who will come and and be raised from the dead. I'm the one who came and fulfilled the law for you. I'm the one who will will intercede on your behalf. I'm, I'm everything. It's such a stark contrast. It's like the difference between love and hate. By comparison, there's no comparison. Shock value, huh? But again, it's designed for us, I think, to see Him for who He really is. Not just a part of your life. He's the one. Everything revolves around Him. By the way, even all those relationships are designed to give Him honor and Him glory. And if that's what's going to keep you from being a Believer in Jesus as Messiah, it's got to go. He talks about that on other occasions. Pretty strong, pretty helpful, pretty clear. Another answer to the question, why would Jesus say such a thing? Would be number four, because it would be wrong for him not to. (laughs) We'll just do this one super fast. I could have put it with the last one. It'd be wrong for him not to. Think about it for a second. If Jesus is the one, the ultimate deliverer king, the king of kings and lord of lords, the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and if he showed up and said, you know what, I just want you to have a balanced life. Just make sure you give me a little bit of love. It would be wrong. It would be illogical. For him to say to you, you know, just include me in your life, would in effect logically be saying he is good, profound, helpful, maybe a prophet, but, but he's not. He's the long-awaited deliverer. And so he can say to you, and it would be wrong if he didn't, give me all of your devotion. Because I and I alone am the Son of God come to provide redemption and salvation. How about this? For him to say anything other than this, if he is the great I am, before Abraham was, I am. For him to say anything shy of this would be for him to be sinning. Because it would be a lie. All of this is designed again for us to see him for who he is. And if we see, and here's the deal, I'm not trying to, I'm not scolding you, I'm preaching, so that's what I do, and uh, raise my voice and perspire. 
someday, hopefully, while I'm preaching, I will perspire for the last time. Um, expire. Anyway, I, I, I'm at the place where I, I'm willing to acknowledge that we don't, we don't know who he is. And so I, I, let, let's be careful when we talk to people who don't know who Jesus is and we just sound like we're scolding them. Um, I mean, we want to be clear on who Jesus is. And and Dr. Luke has been doing a good job showing us historically who Jesus is. In light of who he really is, it's right to hear these extreme statements from him. In light of who he really is, it would be wrong for him to ask for anything less. But I realize we often don't know who he is and we've got to know who he is so that we can, we can hear him rightly for him saying these kinds of things. Because think about it. If we don't know who he is and we don't have any context, that might actually be true for some of you. So thanks for hanging in there and being patient. You have no concept of who he is. For him to say this kind of stuff is pretty crazy. But if he really is the deliverer king, it's not crazy at all. It'd be crazy if he didn't say it. Okay, let's move on to number. Are we on number five? All right, we are cruising. This is great. Impressed with Jesus for what he says. Number five, because he's going to the cross. He's going to say something extreme like this because he's going to the cross. He's been talking about it. He's headed toward it. We know that he did go there. And so when he says what he says in verse 27, it makes more sense. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is going to the cross which, by the way, has him renouncing everything and, and, and on certain levels, in an earthly, humanly sense. He's going to the cross. And he says, if, 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 if you don't take up your cross, 99.9% of the time, that'll be figurative. Um, there have been some exceptions where they've literally been crucified um, because they've belonged to Christ. But if, if, if you don't suffer for your association with me, is what he's saying, Right? It's a no-brainer. If there's not suffering because of your association with me, uh, just know that you're not with me. He's not talking about general suffering because the world we live in is sin-cursed. That's true. We all do suffer. Uh, that's uh, where we, we tongue-in-cheek say, you know, we've all got crosses to bear. Um, and we're talking about things like our mother-in-laws or things like that. I never would do that. But some of you less godly people would. <laughs> We say things like that sometimes because we live in a broken world and so we have broken relationships. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the unique kind of suffering that comes to you if you're one of his followers, a disciple, because in the name of Christ, because of your association with the righteous one and your association with his truth and his word and and because you're associated with him, they're suffering. That's what he's talking about. Jesus is going to the cross, the place of suffering. He's talking to who, those who follow him. And he's saying, if you don't suffer because of your association with me, you're not associated with me. That's why he's saying these radical things. I forget this sometimes. I don't know about you. 
I'm, I'm real. I'll be honest. I'm really thankful that this isn't the overwhelming emphasis of the New Testament or old. I'm really thankful that the overwhelming emphasis is Jesus goes to the cross for us. He goes there to, to fully absorb the, the, the just condemnation that we deserve. And He voluntarily goes, sent from heaven. He voluntarily goes and, and, and absorbs the, the, the just judgment from God that we deserve. And if we trust in Him, His righteousness is given to us. We're justified freely by faith like we read in Romans chapter 5. He's going to talk about that in Luke chapter 18. I'm so glad that that's the emphasis. And I think you should be too. But sometimes then I, I, I forget that accompanying that, being a Christian, a real Christian, not just a cultural Christian, but truly trusting in Christ's work, accompanying that also means there's going to be an amount of suffering associated with that. And how about this? Jesus doesn't want us to forget that. Remember, he's growing in popularity. Crowds are increasing. And he wants to make sure that they, like you and like me, remember... There's going to be an amount of suffering, a certain kind of suffering associated. The Apostle Paul picks this up. The Apostle Peter picks this up. The Apostle John picks this up. The Old Testament saints knew about this as well. There's a certain rub that comes from being associated with this unique God. And he talks about it here because he's going to the cross. I think we should be ever mindful that while he was treated unjustly because of the truth, we're Christians, Messiah followers. The Messiah was treating, uh, treated unjustly because of the truth. There's a part of that. We've got to remember that. We forget that sometimes. Thus the extreme statement. Next, number six. Why would Jesus say what he says that's so extreme? Number six, because he is reasonable. Because he is reasonable. If you haven't picked up on this so far, we're looking at this just from different angles so that we might understand it. He's reasonable. To be a disciple, disciple means learner or follower. So to be a follower is to follow. That's reasonable. And what Jesus is going to make clear is a follower follows, even if it's hard. And a follower follows, even when it's hard, and they keep on following. Remember, the cross is coming. It's going to get difficult. It's going to be hard. Even after the cross, we know it's hard for disciples. Jesus is reasonable to make the, 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 the obvious obvious. If you're going to attach yourself to me. You better be ready. He's reasonable. And he gives some illustrations about this. He wants them to know ahead of time. Okay, you're, you, you all came out. I'm popular. Let me explain some reasonable things to you. You should know what you're getting into. So let's go ahead and look. He gives some illustrations underscoring this. I draw your attention to verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? 
whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and and was not able to finish. That's reasonable, isn't it? It's very, very reasonable. You, You step back and say, Can we afford this? Can we do this? We get halfway done, we're going to just be fools. We see how hard it was and how expensive it was. And you see, in our context, Jesus is saying hard things to would-be followers. Not altogether different from us. I'm popular. You should know what you're getting into. This is reasonable, but you should also reasonably know what's going to be asked of you. Then verse 31, another illustration. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. That's reasonable. That's logical. That would make sense. You'd be crazy not to do that. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Notice Jesus' rationality, once again, is gracious. I want everyone to know who wants to get a benefit from me. You should think long and hard about what it means to be associated with me. I want you to reason this through. I want you to think about this. It's not complicated. It's it's kind for him to do that. Number seven. Why would Jesus say any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be by a disciple? Number seven. Because Christianity is not a bait and switch. Because Christianity is not a bait and switch. At least not authentic Christianity. And I hope that's why we're here. We want to be authentic Christians. Genuine Christians. Genuine Christianity, starting with Jesus himself, is not a bait and switch kind of thing where you promise one thing only to then receive a different product And then you question it and you maybe see the hidden fine print. It's unethical. Christianity, the genuine Christianity that Jesus is talking about is not a bait and switch kind of thing where you're going to promise people all the fluff and stuff and then give them something hard later. Tells them the truth up front. Tells them the truth up front. If it were a bait and switch, and sadly sometimes... Christianity is sold as a bait and switch. Maybe, maybe verse 25 would read like this. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, he or she will only ever be happy, will only ever be healthy, will only ever be wealthy. Or something like that. Come to me to have all of your temporal needs met. 
And if he said that, and he was describing the here and now, he wouldn't be telling the truth. Just like authors, speakers, who promise that if you come to Jesus, and they promise it in the here and now, aren't telling the truth. It's a bait and switch program. And Jesus was the furthest thing from that. Jesus had integrity. Jesus told the truth because if you're associated with him and you're one of his disciples, one of his followers, we all have to remember it didn't end well in the here and now. He wants it to be clear. Unless you take up your cross, i.e. willing to suffer in, for, for me and in my name and in the cause, then you're not my disciple. And again, we could say that that was really that 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 wasn't very nice. It was so honest of him. Thanks be to God that Jesus is not a huckster. He's the truth incarnate. We're so glad for that and so thankful for that. Instead, he's honest and he says, as we've been seeing time and time again, if anyone comes in verse 26, comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You go, that's kind of a big deal to be a disciple of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And in case you just are tuning in, because I don't want to be misunderstood, as if that's possible to not be misunderstood, but, but by comparison is what he's getting at. He's number one priority relationship above all others. How about this? I have a question for you. When you speak of Jesus, and, and I don't mean the, the quick flyby kind of thing, but when you speak of Jesus in a, in a meaningful over time, conversation, relationship. When you speak of Jesus, does he sound anything like this? I think it's important that we grapple with that. I'll be honest with you, this is not the first thing I would tell someone about Jesus. It's not the first thing he says when he shows up. It's not the first thing that Dr. Luke records. I, I wouldn't advise it. Because it, it's assuming we've already seen who he is as, as the Messiah, deliverer, king, the perfect mediator, and, and so on. But surely, when we have those meaningful conversations with people and we have friendships and, and family members we talk to, surely th there ought to be a place for us to talk about Jesus the way he talked about himself. Lest maybe, even though we don't want to be this kind of person, we might be doing a bait and switch kind of Christianity, the kind that Jesus never did. You know, we forget that the crosses that we wear around our necks, and I'm all for it, great conversation starter, symbols of execution, and in the case of Jesus, unjust execution.
and we call ourselves Christians. And he said, you too, in, in effect, will be treated unjustly because of me. You've got to remember that. I wish I, had a, I wish I could tell you I always talk to people like this, you know, and I, I, I can't do that. I do remember, though, um, talking to some folks who are, who are here today, uh, having shared the gospel with them, and, and, and wonderfully, apparently God's spirit was working and softening, and, and, and they're like, okay, where do we sign, you know? Now what? What must we do to be saved? You know, Philippians jail, Philippian jailer kind of thing. And I, and I do remember, by God's grace, maybe well, to go, wait a second. <laughs> Everything I've said is true about Jesus and, and what it means to trust in Him. It's only by grace and only through faith in His finished work. And now you're all eager and excited and you're ready. And, and in a sense, I try to talk Him out of it. I said, because you do need to also hear some other things that Jesus said. Because if you're associated with him, it is wonderful and great and amazing. And you're promised new life in him and resurrection and joy and peace and all of these great things. And the spirit and the fruit of the spirit. But you've got to know that he was treated unjustly. And if you're associated with him, he calls you to take up your cross. Go in eyes wide open. Wish I did that all the time. It might mean less sales. But hopefully by God's grace, it means more disciples. And remember, if you don't remember, I'll tell you, in Acts, I think it's Acts 11, the disciples are called Christians. It's talking about the same people. Isn't it good hearing this stuff? It's kind of hard-hitting, but it's good and important. And we're going to get done. (laughs) Number eight. Why would Jesus say such strong, clear, powerful things? Because a non-following follower is nonsense. Because a non-following follower is nonsense. We can do this one really easy. Go ahead and look at verse 34. A non-follower, a non-following follower is nonsense. Verse 34, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. It's useless. In our context, he's talking about discipleship and following him. And if you're a non-following follower, hello, you're not a follower. If you've got salt that doesn't have saltiness, functionally is not salt. Just a little historic note here from a New Testament scholar. It might be helpful. Most salt in the region came from the evaporated pools around the Dead Sea and was mixed with gypsum and other impurities. When moisture hit the salt, it evaporated and left behind these impurities, which were mixed with it in the soil. The salt loses its saltiness and is thrown away in that sense. What you have left, we might say, really isn't salt. And it doesn't work as salt anymore either. (laughs) 
Now, if this text was taken out of its context, I, I might be a bit baffled as to what it meant. I could maybe take some pretty good guesses. Maybe you could too. I think we could come to some decent conclusions. But it's in this context, I think we can come to better than decent conclusions. Salt doesn't have saltiness. It's useless. If a disciple doesn't disciple, it's not a disciple. Disciple means follower. If a follower doesn't follow, they're, hello, not a follower. And Jesus wants to make it clear and is making it clear. You want me for my benefits. If you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me, you're not a follower. You're not a disciple. All right, then. You might say to yourself, but that's not what I was taught. It's not what I was taught either. But it's pretty to the point. Okay, two more. Two more. Why would he say this? Number nine. You ready for the the two theological words of the day? I've already mentioned one of them. And this is why you guys paid big bucks to get in the door, okay? Um, Number nine. Because justification and sanctification are friends. Because justification and sanctification are friends. And here is where I'm going to step outside of this passage. I'm going to stay in Luke. I'm going to borrow from Paul a little bit. Justification and sanctification are friends. And here's what I mean by that. And we could go into super deep meaning about words and so on. But in gener- generally speaking, in Christianity, we, we speak of justification as where God declares you righteous. He declares you a law keeper, even though you're not based upon the work of Christ, okay? We read about it early in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, faith in Jesus, we have peace with God. So, so right now, even though I'm still struggling with sin, and you're still struggling with sin, even if you're a Christian, especially if you're a Christian, you're struggling. If you're not a Christian, you're not struggling, okay? But we, we struggle, and, and I haven't arrived, and I'm not perfect, and but God has justified me by faith. Romans chapter 4 says God justifies the ungodly. Justification, it's positional. God makes a pronouncement. Pat Abendroth is righteous. Well, Pat Abendroth isn't righteous. Based upon the perfect righteousness of Jesus. It's glorious, it's wonderful, it's awesome. That's why we, we say we believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're radically committed to those things for the glory of God alone, based upon the authority of Scripture alone, the solas of the Reformation. We love those things. Sanctification, generally speaking, is talking about spiritual growth. There's a positional kind of sanctification too. We're not talking about that. General categories. It's talking about spiritual growth, which involves effort, involves doing things. And I want to suggest to you that they're not enemies. Doing things like following Jesus, suffering for righteousness, they're friends. They're not mutually exclusive. And. Not only do we need to hear from the Apostle Paul, Romans 1 to 5. 
So I'm justification-centric. And then in Romans 6, oh, because we're united to Christ and we've died with Him and we've been raised with Him, we should live a different way. We don't just need to learn that from Paul. We learn it from Jesus. And as a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus is going to clearly teach justification by grace alone through faith alone. In Luke 18, clearly. But justification and sanctification aren't warring. They're friends. If you truly belong to Jesus, you're, you're, you're genuinely trusting in Him. It's based upon His work, not your own. But guess what? You're going to follow Him. You're going to want to follow Him. There's going to be devotion there. Desire there. Fruit of the Spirit wrought, we would learn from the Apostle Paul in Galatians. So let's, let's realize that Jesus would say such a thing, not because he's denying salvation by grace alone through faith alone. He believes it. We'll, we'll hear it loud and clear. It's his work. But he doesn't just justify us and say, now whatever. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he says, follow me, he means follow me. And we could talk lots more about that, but we won't. Both are very important and we get off track. I get off track. You get off track. When we, we confuse the two, we, we forget one or the other. Number 10, finally. Why would he say such a radical thing? perhaps being perceived as unkind or unloving or ungracious because he's earnest. Because he's earnest. And what I mean by earnest is he's deeply sincere. He's deeply serious. And before we read the passage, let me put it in personal terms. He's earnest about your spiritual condition and your spiritual welfare and my spiritual condition, their spiritual condition, their spiritual welfare. He's so sincere and earnest that he's not willing to leave well enough alone because well enough is not well. He's so earnest, he, he, he's going to say these things. And I love the earnest statement at the end of verse 35. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's a statement of earnestness. It's a statement of care. It's a statement of love and concern. Sobriety. I don't know what his tone of voice sounded like. I don't know if he said it loudly. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Or if he said it with softness. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I don't know how he said it. But we can know that he meant it. And it's personal. It's genuine. He was earnest. That's why he said these things. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The fact is, some aren't going to hear. Some are. The, 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 the plea of Jesus is earnest, though. So I want to do my best to echo those words even though I don't know exactly what it sounded like. I know he said it. 
take these words to heart. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you that Jesus is not who we would make him up to be. Thank you that he shatters our our paradigm again and again and, and wonderfully and gloriously so. Surely he is a much grander, much more magnificent, much more loving Savior than we could imagine. And so we give you thanks that, that it's not left to our imagination to know who He is. Uh, please continue to use your word to guide us and to, to, to shape our understanding of Jesus into, into reality. And Lord, by your grace, may, may many be given ears to hear. And may many trust in Him for His great justifying work. And may many trust in Him for His great sanctifying work. And May we come to him on his terms and be genuine Christians. May we listen to his strong pronouncements even. In Jesus' name, amen.